This is the Get A Life Podcast. X-Cult Conversations. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Get A Life Podcast. Today is cold, cold, cold. It's January. Cold up north, but nice and warm down here. Can't help but rub that in. <laughs> Today we have a special guest with us. Um, he actually grew up um, and made a lot of visits to my hometown in Nietzsche. Um, your grandparents were Pemina though, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, and we saw him often. His grandparents were from Pemina. Um, welcome to the show today, Bradley McCallum. Thank you. It's nice to so, it's nice to see you all. <laughs> it's nice to have you. <laughs> so, Brad, I don't know where you want to start with this one. Um, do you want to just start with a little bit of where you're from? Sure, we can do that. Um, I I was born in 1970, uh, the end of 1970, November. And grew up in, in Detroit and grew up in the meeting in Detroit where my parents were local. Um, my grandparents, my mother's parents um, were local in St. Vincent. They lived in Pemina, which is near Nietzsche. So I spent a lot of time in the summers out there during my preteen and early teen years. Uh, my father's parents had been withdrawn from in 19... 19- earlier in 1970 before I was born. So I, I never actually met them. I had two sisters. Um, my dad uh, had stayed in 1970 um, with one of his brothers. His parents and his sister uh, had left, and sister and her husband and family had left in 70. So it was a, it was a family kind of divided, uh, which was Having been born in 70 was a very raw wound and kind of a constant presence with us uh, growing up in the house. Um, during during the growing up, I, I interacted, uh, particularly in my early teens and mid-teens with JHS a number of times, who I will say always to me and my parents and my uh, grandparents was very kind. Um, as I grew older and was listening to some of the things in his meetings, I was kind of flabbergasted because of the the difference in what felt like crazy talk versus what felt like on a personal level and our family level, very different. So just, just to make it clear for our, our listeners, JHS is James Symington, who was the leader of the Brethren in that period. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Um, then in the late eighties, uh, I don't remember what year it was exactly, uh, JHS died and, uh, Mr. John Hales became the leader. My father, um, was kind of ecstatic over this. He, he was a huge John Hales supporter and, uh, just was kind of over the moon. And at least I feel like my experience uh, having listened to a lot of other people's experiences, my different my experience growing up was quite different. Um, but in any event, my experience of Jay, John Hales taking over was one of kind of a almost like a 
kind of a renewal period. Uh, Mr. Symington had been sick for a long time and sort of semi out of commission. And the place had been kind of run in an interregnum um, with various people. But then when Mr. Hills took over, there was this big push, at least in my experience, and particularly in Detroit in the meeting, with this kind of um, you know renewed focus on serious engagement with what they called the truth, you know, reading the ministries, the old ministries, studying the Bible seriously, uh, a huge crackdown on drinking, at least uh, in our area. And Mr. Hales, I mean, he spoke publicly about it. I heard him, and not only in the meetings, but in the house. Um, and it just led to a kind of this period of relative stability, but kind of almost puritanical sobriety sobriety and yeah. kind of uh, monastic, you know, this big focus on just kind of really, really buckling down. Um, I wanted to get, I was, I was 18 and I was interested in a young sister. And so I wanted to write, wanted to write her <laughs> um, a letter and just try and get to know her. Cause I don't, I'd, I had never spoken to her actually. And uh, I was advised by the local priests to call Mr. Hales and discuss this with him, which I did. <laughs> and uh, it was probably a two, three minute call. Mr. Hales asked, you know, who I was and my dad was on the line and, and um, who she was. And she was a cousin of the, the guy who was in charge in Detroit. So and he had not, he had met her because um, he had taken he had, he had either been at or taken three day meetings in Detroit not long before this and she had been a babysitter in the house and so he knew her and so he said well what you should do is wait until she is eighteen she was seventeen wait until she is eighteen and get married straight away and I kind of gulped because I. I had actually never spoken to her. So I said, okay. And we got off the phone and my dad said, well, you know what to do now. So I called her at her father's house and said, I've spoken to Mr. Hales and said, I was interested in marrying you. And he said, we should get married. And she said, wow. okay. Wow. <laughs> wow. So wow. between wow. then and this was maybe three months before she... It was, it's, I think this was in the summer and she turned, I turned 19 in November and she turned 18 in December and we got married uh, four days after she turned 18. Hmm. We had maybe spoken half an hour, 30 minutes. I, I just can't believe that this man, you know, thinks that he has the authority to bless or not bless people's marriages. That blows me away. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I can I can a hundred percent confirm what you're saying. I had exactly the same experience of phoning John Hales and and then marrying someone that I'd you know getting engaged, committed to marry someone that I'd spoken to for literally five minutes. So you got a twenty five minutes advance on me there. But yeah, that is what happened. Incredible as it sounds, that is really what happened in those days. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it does sound unbelievable in retrospect. Like thinking mm. back on it, it, it does seem unbelievable, but it, it, it very much happened. It was normal in that environment. It was. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we got married. Um, we promptly started having children. Um, and we had five children in six years. Yeah. And, and that was a, a really difficult uh, period of our lives, as, as one can imagine. Um, physically, Brent, uh, my ex-wife, wasn't well. Um, uh, she also had uh, other health challenges that um, I just I'm a little reluctant to say too much, but yeah, yeah, of course, challenges that made made life our our, our family life pretty unstable. Um, she was under she eventually became under the care of one of the brethren doctors who was actually quite kindly, quite a kindly guy and got her medication. Um, but it was an extraordinarily challenging period of, of our lives. But there were weird things, you know, just by this point, I had started to sort of doubt things in my mid to late teens, but decided I'd really go all in. I'd double down. I'd really I'd I'd become the poster child of, of brethrenism. But then there were just there was just so much weird nonsense, you know. Um, her mother was able to come and help for a few days after the birth of our first child, but was not allowed to come with the subsequent children, which is bizarre because that's actually when you need to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I remember that rule. Yeah. 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 Why was, was the fast. rule? Was it scripture based or something? Or I don't it was know. A hard and fast rule. Yeah. What you could that the, the, yeah. the mother-in-law could only help with the or, or the mother first could child. only help with the first child. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I don't know whether the assumption was is that she would teach everything that needed to be taught at that time, and that <laughs> the couple would be on their own afterwards. I really don't know. Yeah. But I was working all, a tremendous yeah. amount. I worked for my dad um, during this period as well our business has, you know, kind of ebbed and flowed. I mean, as business does, but they were never big business, but they did, they did well, but they were starting to encounter some challenges. And I had some real differences with my dad on the way things, he was doing things and um, he would not entertain even the slightest engagement on that because he was the man in charge, you know, and anyway, um, by the time the kids were toddlers and, and sort of young youth, you know, young children, I had pretty much, there, there was this period in Detroit where things were under this extremely hardline um, sort of rule by, by, by a gentleman. The only guy I really harbor still really, really deep, deep dislike for. Everyone else has kind of faded into kind of a numb, a numb ache, but... The guy that was in charge in the 80s um, was just a dreadful, I, I believe, was a dreadful person. Hmm. Who just recently was restored, by the way. He's, he's back in the... <laughs> oh, can you name him or do you, would you prefer not to? Uh, it's Rick Wilson. Um, oh, yeah. uh, I've heard of him. Yeah. I've he heard was, terrible stories about him. He was my wife's first cousin. Um, Extremely just religious hardliner. Hard, like, I don't even, you, you know, when you read the, like, the definition of a psychopath about someone not having emotion, yeah. I genuinely feel that he came very close to that. He displayed virtually no emotion. But I will say this about him. He, he did, he lived, he lived an almost monastic style. I mean, he kind of lived what he, 
what he yelled and taught about you know i mean but he was a, a complete um i probably shouldn't swear oh no you can say it oh you can swear he was as much a as you complete want on asshole complete <laughs> um, yeah. he was really he he after around in our marriage you know he meddled around like turning my wife against my mother oh, max against yeah. my mother saying shit to me about my dad saying shit to my parents about us he, he was just an awful person genuinely awful person um and we went through this period in the, in the 80s where he was really there was a there was a, a weird faction of brethren in detroit there was there was these kind of three camps in our in our sort of meeting and interchange there was the ultra religious in with the current regime thing um there was this whole group of people that were kind of semi stuck in the past and kind of living semi-living brethren in the 50s lives and kind of going mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there was the ones that were 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 just one foot out and he kind of brought everything to a head with that group in the in the 80s early 90s and a whole whole slew of people left um people i really liked people i really knew and cared about and he also was forming kind of factions kind of leading this forming of of you know of you know the in people and the people who are on the on the on the naughty yeah, list yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. The, 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 which was very which was endemic in the brethren as all of you know oh yes um and so i started to really completely lose lose confidence in the whole thing and then just literally in the span of a few weeks i just like completely lost any um sense that this thing was right i just mm -hmm. It just kind of washed over me like the dam broke. Once you start allowing yeah. <laughs> doubt and thinking critically, yeah. and like it, it's, all, it's all nonsense. It is all nonsense. Yeah, the harsh light of reality breaks in. Yeah, and then it's and you just realize it's all garbage. It's all garbage. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's tyrannical. Yeah, it is illogical. It is not founded even remotely in scripture. Um, it is antithetical to Christianity. It, I believe, is a, is a kind of a gross perversion of Jesus's teachings. Yeah. So I started to become problematic <laughs> for the brethren in Detroit. I started raising questions, and but never overtly. I, I'm a non-confrontational person, so I was doing stuff which, in, in their minds, made it even worse because I was, <laughs> I was being deceitful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not really i was just talking to someone. Yeah. yeah it was bad enough to hurt them but not bad enough they could withdraw from you yeah no no, <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah, no no in the Plymouth brethren they love to throw around another word they which we use differently in the normal world wicked right they would always call something <laughs> wicked where the or normal wickedness. world that's awesome that's cool wow that was <laughs> wicked you see that right in the, in the plymouth brethren something wicked was deeply satanic <laughs> Well, and in the 80s, Rick's kids were all little, um, and he had a lot of them. How many do you have? Mm. Eight, nine, ten? Uh, Eleven, I think. Eleven, wow. okay. And his They're kids not... were all little, and yeah. I mean, you know, it's, when your kids are little, you can sort of keep them in line a whole lot easier, but when they get into their teen years, that's kind of when the challenge starts. Mm. And I remember yeah. sitting there thinking, boy, he is so religious and so hardline. Just wait till his kids get a little bit older, and he, and he did. He did end up against that wall. Did yeah. any of his kids leave? Yeah. So um, 
His oldest son, Lee, actually worked uh, for my dad and I. And in fact, my uh, last full day in the Brethren before I left was spent with Lee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they were characters, too. I mean, they these were, were funny. Not- yeah, I, I will say this: that the kids were funny, they were smart, they were yeah. they had very charismatic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rick had a charisma as well. It was just not the funny charisma. No, not funny <laughs> at all. Um, no, when he looked he, at you and you were doing something wrong, you knew you were doing something wrong. Like he didn't have to say it; it was just something about his look. But Whoa. but after I left, you know, and and there was a kind of a several year period where I. I went back, I came out, I went back, I came out, um, lots of visits and things. And, you know, at one point Lee left as well. Um, cause Lee was, I don't know, three or, uh, three or four, maybe five years younger than me. And, you know, that was kind of held over me that, you know, I had been this bad influence on him. The really tragic thing about Lee is, is he did, he did leave properly at one point and he ended up with two small children from someone he was in a relationship with who then he ended the relationship and took the children and started a relationship with another per, another woman. And in any event, he, around the time of the review, tried to go back. And, um, you know, his mother was from, was from Australia, <coughs> from Metro Sydney. I think she was from Kellyville. And he had some direct communication with Mr. Hales and reportedly, and I don't know the details of it, but he got a letter from his grandfather uh, in Australia detailing, he, he had been trying to get back and he had these two children and he had this, he'd been involved with drugs and drink. And he had, he was one of the people who had gone out and really, you've all known them, you know, the people who go out and just can't really function properly. But he had these two children, um, and he had been decided he wanted to go back, and he had been having these communications with the brethren in Detroit, and the and he got apparently what I was told is he got this letter from his grandfather who had been in communication with the regime there in Sydney, and uh, he he killed himself uh, that night or the next morning. Um, so who knows what was who knows it's just. It's one of these weird unclosed chapters for me, you know, as someone I knew extremely well, someone I literally spent my last day inside with, and um, he must have been put under some sort of extraordinary pressure to do that. Just knowing him, it must have been extraordinary. Adding tragedy to tragedy, Mm -hmm. because the person that he was in a relationship with was not the children's birth mother, and they were not married. The brethren took the children from the, oh, from the only no. person they had ever known as a mother, which was this this poor woman trying to raise these children. Oh, so they took. How did? Oh, well, legal, legally, legally, Lee's parents had were the yeah. next. See, and that's why this is so important for people to. I know Shelley did a post the other day. I mean, it was a bit ago. It was such a good post about all the things that you should have in. And I, I mean, I have a will 100% I'll say it right now. Like my, 
nobody from the brethren are allowed to touch my body are allowed to have anywhere near my funeral allowed to have anything to do with my children it is stated in there very detailed of the absence of them and i think it's important for people to make sure that that is covered you should have a will yeah i mean if you, if you don't have it write it down somewhere and sign it yeah yeah I did mine and I uh, made sure that as well. I was like, absolutely. Well, I put in mind no religion and I was like, uh, yeah, I do not want my family uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. I started to get kind of um, these, these thoughts and doubts were building uh, challenges in our family business. My conflicts with my dad were becoming stronger. My issues with Rick and, the hierarchy in Detroit were becoming more pronounced. And, um, you know, and as a young parent, I, I just started to feel like I was going crazy, to be perfectly honest. I, I felt like I was going to snap. And I did one day. Um, I just decided I needed two to three weeks away from everything to regroup. So I, I did that. I I wrote a letter and and you know, I'm not proud of it. I wrote a letter and left it for my wife and said, I'll be back in two to three weeks. Uh, left a message for my dad. And then <laughs> this is where things get really weird. I, I actually bought a ticket. This was all pre 9-11. So I drove to the airport and thought, where should I go? And I had gotten a bunch of cash out and bought a, a, a ticket, a round trip ticket to London an hour before the flight was supposed to leave. Walked That's to awesome. the gate, got on, got on the plane and flew to London. Um, got to London. I found out and, and then just just literally walked around London for about five days. Wow. Um, was that the first vacation you'd ever gone on? <laughs> yeah. But I was in a really foggy state of mind. I mean, yeah. I remember quite vividly, but I was beginning to get um, feeling kind of i felt unwell honestly yeah yeah Um, yeah so i i reached out to my dad and my ex-wife at one point from the charing cross post office which was in central london and uh, they had already tracked me to london somehow i don't i mean this this tracking and following people this shit's been going on for decades decades They already knew I was in London. They already had people stationed following me um, and watching for me. So I, at that point, kind of panicked. And I spent an entire afternoon like trying to ditch them walking. Mm. And if you've ever been in central London, it's that's a relatively easy task to ditch <laughs> untrained people. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then I ended up I ended up actually sleeping in a park for two days because I was terrified of going back to my hotel. I slept in Hyde Park on a bench Mm -hmm. and then thought, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to leave everything that I brought with me, except I bought a a bike in London, which is weird, Mm -hmm. but I bought a bicycle. So I took my bike and and I got a taxi to the airport and I flew home and I changed my destination to Boston. So I flew into Boston and I'm going through immigration and they said, can you come with us? <laughs> can you come? So sure. I went into the back room 
and they said, you've been reported as a missing person. And I said, I'm not a missing person. Everyone knows where I am. I've been in constant contact. And they said, well, under the laws, we just have to make contact with you, advise you that you've been reported as missing, but then we will also are required to report back to your family where you were made contact with. Hmm. I thought, oh, that's clever. And they will know yeah. then I re-entered the country. Yeah, that sounds like bullshit too, that they have to disclose where you are. Because if you if you say, I am not missing, I am here of my own free will, then they should not have to tell them where you are. That's, yeah. that, that's sketchy. But that's not how it works. Mm. So, no, and I mean, exactly the same thing happened to me in, you know, almost identical circumstances. I reached a point where I just couldn't take the stress anymore of being in the Brethren. There was a whole load of financial and business stuff thrown at me. And, and well, yeah, you know, there's, there's a whole backstory. But <laughs> I just literally walked out. I left. I rented a little room cheaply as I could out in the countryside, 50, 60 miles from home. And, you know, I was very, very distressed, um, very, and I needed space and time just to walk. And I just walked and walked and walked, probably did a hundred miles in three to four days. And it ended exactly the same way. The police caught up with me, um, pulled me over and said, you're on the missing persons list. And I hadn't even thought about it before, but the reason the brethren had had done that to put me on the missing persons list was was just it's a good way to find out where I was. It wasn't due to any concern about me. Yeah. So it was very, very interesting. They did the same thing to you. Yeah. That's fascinating, Richard. Hmm. Yeah. Just, what what year was that? Uh that would have been um twenty fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what year were they doing this to you, Bradley? It was in the late nineties. Uh, I think it was so they haven't changed at all then. <laughs> so the, the, these, these practices, these practices of hiring private investors. I mean, my dad talked about being involved in private investigator nonsense in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been doing yeah, this. Unbelievable. Stuff. Yeah. So I ended up in Boston. I got a, a rented a little room somewhere in a like a rooming house. And walked again, walked and walked and walked and walked, trying to figure out my next step. And I'm walking through South Station in Boston, and South Station is the main train station in Boston. I mean, it's this huge cavernous place full of people and uh, trains. And I mean, Boston's a big city. And all of a sudden, I feel an arm, a uh, hand on my arm, gripping it tightly. And I turned, and it was one of my cousins, my wife's cousin. And he said, it's time to go home. Oh, um, shit. He was right there. Yeah. So, I mean, how they found me in South Station, Boston, they, he maintained complete coincidence, God's will. I just happened to be standing here in South Station. <laughs> but even in my really distressed state of mind, I knew that was not. Yeah. They had somehow tracked me. And this was pre-smartphone. I don't, I don't know how they tracked me, but they had tracked me down. We went out to the car. He said, we're going to wherever you have your things. I said, I have very little. And he said, well, we'll go and get it. And I'm driving you to the airport. And I was emotionally and kind of psychologically pretty distressed at this point. So I just went with him. We drove, got my stuff, drove me to the airport. They put me on a plane. I arrived in Detroit to the loving arms of Rick Wilson waiting at the gate. 
who who said, I'm glad you're home, but you're very, very sick. Um, You're sick? You're very sick and you need to come home and you need to get treatment. So we went to the house and uh, Dr. Truen was there, Dr. Phil Truen. I don't know if any of you knew him, but he was was a brethren doctor uh, local in Detroit. And he gave me shots of who knows what it was. Um, and then he would come and visit once a day. And shot, a shots as in injections. Injections. Yeah. Not shots in a shot glass. And he didn't yeah. tell you what they were. No, he just said it will help make me better. But That's it like terrifying. It sort of decommissioned me. I was in bed for weeks. Um, then <laughs> then uh I started to get this panicky feeling again, and I and I kind of redid this whole thing over again. One day I just left, but I I didn't uh, fly. I drove because I thought, well, if I drive, they're not going to be able to find me. Mm. And I went back to Boston, back to the same place I was. And literally within six hours, I got out of my car, and there were multiple brethren there who walked over. Did you have we'll a take... mobile phone? I had a, like a flip phone. Yeah, I, it must have been. But what year was this? What 98, was... 98, 99. I don't think so they had then... any streamlined stuff then. How the hell would they be tracking them and stuff? I'm just... maybe, they put, maybe they put stuff in my clothes. Maybe they had a, something in my wallet. I, I don't know. Tracker, mm-hmm. tracker in your car is quite plausible. I mean, they would that probably would have that most technology likely. then. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's I mean, they like. can attach it by magnet to your underside of your vehicle. Let's not give them any yeah. ideas if they're not doing it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, no, they're, they're already doing it. Already. I, I know they're I already want them to it. follow me. I'm begging <laughs> them to. No. Sorry. Go on, Bradley. They, they flew me home. I was put back in bed, was given more injections. And at some point, uh, Dr. Truen switched it to, to tablets. Like, I should just take these pills. And I, and I, at this point, I was starting to get some clarity in my head. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a lot more complicated than I thought. So I stopped taking the medicine um, and just disposing of it when no one was around in the bathroom. And um, I became very clear in my mind. I am actually not sick. I am not completely debilitated and having to lay in bed. Um, so I thought, okay, this time when I leave, this time when I leave, <laughs> I'm going to do it differently. So I went and I, you know, thinking back on it, Richard, I think you're probably right on the car because I drove the car to a local train station and got on a train mm-hmm. to go to Chicago. And when I get to one of the towns in Michigan, halfway to Chicago, brothers got on the train and pulled me off the train. Wow. <laughs> so they had figured out where the car was. Okay, yeah. it's at the station, the last train left, whatever. And they'd somehow gotten ahead of the train and anyway, got back home. This time they took everything away from me. They took my passport, my money, my identification, literally everything. They, they said, you need to surrender everything because you're, you're, you're deeply and profoundly unwell. You need to try and look. Oh. So I let it, I kind of let it go that, that, that point for a while. Um, I was eventually, I had not been withdrawn from, I'd just been shut up. I was, we were restored went back to meeting um but then i started i said well i'll, I'll have to 
have to do this a bit more methodically. Um, Holy cow. I did. In, in, you are in, not defeated. I'll give you that. One day I found hidden. Um, I found my wallet in my, with all my ID and my passport and everything in the house. So they had not removed it from the house. They had just like thought they had secreted it away. So I thought, okay, well, that will make it easier for when I'm ready to go. So then I, I left a final time and just stayed in Detroit, stayed locally and got a job. Um, went into the hotel business because my dad, my dad had had several companies and one of them was a property management company. Um, so I thought that's kind of similar, but it's kind of worldly and it's kind of fun sounding. So I'll go into the hotel business. So I did that, and that's what I've done ever since. But they came and would, would like lay and wait outside my work and like kind of block my entrance into the place and try and talk to me into coming home. And finally, I said, it's just, you guys have got to stop. And if you don't stop, I'm going to get a protection order yeah. against you guys. You, you're harassing me now. So, yeah. Then I went through a really kind of dark period personally, um, drinking a lot. Um, doing drugs, just living really terribly, somehow managed to keep a very good employment component of my life going. <laughs> but I got an apartment right down in the ghetto where I didn't think they would want to come and they would be too scared to come. Uh, and, and made some really good friends. Eventually I moved to Chicago, met some really fantastic people there who really took me under their wing. So one guy is actually was actually a young Church of Scotland minister who was interning in, in Chicago, who was very familiar with the brethren. So we became good friends. He's still one of my oldest friends. Um, went from Chicago, I ended up getting married again um, to a, a woman that didn't last very long. She was German, moved to Germany. Um, Learned fluent German, enrolled in university there. Um, going to university and living and working there in Germany and um, decided I didn't want to be there anymore. And my marriage ended and I, I moved to England. Lived in London for a number of years. During that period, I spent some time with the company I was working with. Intercontinental sent me to Asia for a while. So I was in Hong Kong for a bit. And, uh, Bangkok and Thailand and came back to London then then in um, what was it late 2000 aughts so probably 2007 or seven or eight at this point I um, got a oh, oh so there was the review the whole review in the middle of all this so I would make annual trips back and I said I, you know I had a right to see my children I had just signed over everything financially to my my ex-wife and my kids. So I literally had, had took nothing from anybody. Just I said I did want to be able to see them. Yeah. And that was granted. So um so I would make annual trips back and I would visit the children, but it was always with a priest there. It's extremely stilted and awkward. And then the so I'm working in London and I get a call in my office in London. And it's two priests from Detroit. The old regime was out. Rick apparently was on the outs. There's new, new guys. One of them was a cousin of mine. Um, they said, you know, we've treated you wrongly. We've treated you as bad as we could have ever treated anyone. Um, we want to tell you that we're sorry. 
um, that we'd like to make it right. I'm like, well, it's a little, a little late now, you know, <laughs> a dec- you know, half a decade and you guys haven't even reached out, but whatever it's, it's silly. Well, just so you know, we're here for you. Feel free to chat anytime. Anytime you're in the States, you're welcome to come hang out. Um, your dad will be calling you, you know, just, just, it's all what was by, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's everything <laughs> You know, and I'm like, yeah, wow, no. It yeah. didn't last long. I remember the review. It yeah. really didn't last long. Mm-mm. No, so I go, I go. So the next visit home, my dad wants to meet with me. We talk to him. He's like, I just feel so badly the way everything went. And I'm like, yeah, dad, but your your Christianity, your version of it is a mockery of Christianity. Yeah. in the way I've come to understand it it just he was shocked at that and I kind of regretted saying it because I actually believe that he believed he was right mm-hmm. but it's probably good for him to hear um, the truth hurts sometimes yeah then my ex-wife wanted to meet with me so she met with me and apologized and it was all like apologies all around my dad's like come by anytime you're always welcome in our house and within about a year, I go back for my next visit and it was all changed. Yeah. yeah. I had shown no interest in coming back. So that was all over. My mom, my mom had actually written a letter after this friendly visit saying, you know, don't be upset with us. Your dad's doing what he thinks is right. Please don't. But she had apparently done this unsanctioned. So during my next visit, she had to she had to profess in front of the priests to me that she had done what was wrong, and that she writing me a letter was against the Lord's will, and that she regretted it, and she wanted me to know that my communication with the brethren should be through the priests and not with her. Uh, they just torture themselves. <laughs> they torture themselves. Yeah. yeah. So. Then it, you know, the 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 drawbridge snapped up just as fast as it had dropped down. Yeah, yeah. And then in two thousand seven, late two thousand seven, my I got an email actually from my brother in law uh, saying that my father was dying. He had a, he had a um, kind of a chronic disease, uh, kind of a cerebral arterial disease that manifested very much like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And they said, you know, he doesn't have long. So I decided, you know, I am kind of tired of England. And the more I thought about it, the more I weighed on it. I'm like, I should go back to the brethren. I should definitely go back. I've had my my stint outside. Dad's dying. This is a message. Um, They reached out to me. I've got to go back. So I quit my job. I moved home. I moved back to the States. I got to actually took a consulting job in Virginia. I was working on that, reached out to the brethren. My brother-in-law was overjoyed. He's like, oh, hallelujah. You know, the prodigal son returns. And so he's like, reach out to the brethren in Detroit. They have, that's who you need to talk to. Because um, he was local in Columbus. So I reached out to the brethren in Detroit. Nothing. Zippo, nada, zilch. We waited two weeks. But I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go to Detroit. I packed up all my stuff. Drove to Detroit. And I went to a diner to have breakfast. 
I'm kind of mulling over next steps because I was convinced. I was absolutely convinced this is where I should be. And I see one of my cousins. I walk out of the diner and she was walking by on the street. It's like a shopping area. And she was walking by with one of her their brother and girlfriends. And they apparently immediately called the priests, let them know I was in town. I get a call immediately within like an hour. And they're like, you're here. And I'm like, yes, I wrote you guys weeks ago, but nobody even responded. Like nobody even said, hey, stand by. Hey, come back. Nothing, like nothing. So then they kicked into high gear. Um, they said, okay, no problem. So I, I, they, somebody owned a house that was not occupied. So they put some furniture in it for me. They said, come, we'll get you a job. We'll get you set up. Brother and sisters made me food. But while they were doing all this, they actually asked me to go stay at Dr. Truen's house. And I'm just thinking to myself, wait a minute, like I've been withdrawn from for years. The cardinal sin growing up would have been having an out in their house. I literally was living with the Truens. I was wow. staying in their spare bedroom. They're making me meals. We're hanging out. We're, we're doing stuff. And then when they went to meeting, they said, okay, we're just going to go to the reading. You know, we'll be back in, you know, an hour and a half. And I was, my, my head was starting to explode. And I'm like, this, this is bizarre. So then they were going to set me up in one of the, one of these, by this point, the brethren businesses had all been sort of amalgamating and in, into these large enterprises. And so the brother, Others took me to two different businesses and were like, you can work here, you can work here, and we'll set you up, and, and here's information, and you can start studying. And then I got moved into this house to be in on my own, and sisters filled the fridge with food. And then just, just like that, boom, everything stopped. Just like a wall dropped. They said, well, we think you should get a job. And we think you should find an apartment and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So I'm like, well, this is, this is bullshit. Like what, what's going on here? So I heard afterwards that they had apparently talked to Mr. Hales and Mr. Hales had vetoed me coming back. And I don't know what I ever did to Bruce Hales, why that would be the case, but I do know there were rumors of me being gay. Maybe that was it. I had posted some stuff online on Dick Wyman's website about, Kind of anti John Hales. <laughs> memory. I, I think I referred to the depth of evil and darkness surrounding the Hales. Uh, well, I, th I think we all know by now that Bruce Hales has a bit of a weird thing for his daddy. And yeah. uh, so that's probably it right there, right? It's because if you say one thing against John Hales, it's like, that's my daddy, right? He freaks out. <laughs> so then I. Um, so I got, they rented me an apartment, they furnished it. And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to get a job. I, I said, I, I only know the hotel business. Like, that's all I know. And you've told me that the hotel business is this, uh, is deeply evil. And they're like, fine, get a, get a job in a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> that's completely cool. That's just fine. Uh, and by this point, I was bumped down the hierarchy of priests to just like two quite old elderly brothers that were just placeholders. Mm -hmm. And so I concluded like this, this is all bullshit. I, I would have never lasted anyway. So I just, I um, lived in their 
apartment for a while and then I got a place in the city and a job and kind of resumed life as normal. Um, yeah. I think I can shed a bit of light on that uh, sudden change of heart um, where Bruce Hales intervenes and doesn't want you back because uh, I'm thinking probably it was a you know around the same time there was a, a brother ex-brother name of Feller F-E-L-L-E-R was the surname and he had gone out in the UK probably in the 70s and uh, his his um his sisters his sister was local with me I knew his sister this isn't this is an older guy um and he moved for some reason while he was out he moved actually to Knoxville Tennessee near where Carmen is and then he decided you know late in his life he wanted to go back to the brethren and they they kept him waiting for I think two or three years in spite of being an older man with no connections, he had his own house. He was very fervent to get back. And we were told, I mean, I was in the bed at the time, and we were told that Bruce Hales is very reluctant to let people back in the Brethren if they've been out for a while. And the reason was that some, um, some persons who had come in from outside or who had gone back had caused a lot of trouble. And I think Bruce Hales worry was that someone coming in after a long period would never fit in and then they would kind of contact the media i think there was a reference to a guy called what was his name some weird name holiday or some such name some guy who had come in from outside and stayed in the brethren a few years and then went off again and then contacted reporters and so bruce was actually just blocking you know you know, maybe if you'd only been out for a short time, but, you know, if you'd actually kind of had a, your own life in the world, he was just blocking those people from coming back. Well, I can attest to that as well, because they blocked me. Um, so I was confined in 2008. Uh, I joined the military in 2010. I found out that, you know, we weren't sending troops armored, which I was at the time, to Afghanistan anymore. And I literally put in my voluntary release and got out of the military and in my head, I was like, I'm going to move to the States because my parents just moved there. I'm going to go back into the Brethren for a bit, get my green card, join the American Marines. So I did this and I told the Brethren that I was thinking about coming back. And my dad and Randy Cowie flew out to the military base in Gagetown, New Brunswick, came and visited me. Now, in reality, I had no intentions of staying back in the Brethren, but they put me up at a house um, that my grandparents owned, but weren't occupied because they'd also moved to Washington, D.C. from Montreal. And I was getting regular priestly visits from Randy and Derek Cowie. My father had set me up with a job because I was now out of the military and I was doing construction work. And now I was still going to the bars and I was doing everything I wanted to do. But according to them, I was actually playing by the rules. I wasn't doing anything bad. And I was having priestly visits quite often. And all of a sudden the work dried up. So I had no work. I don't speak French in Quebec. So very hard for me to get a job. And, you know, I, I had nothing. And to get into the States, I had to get to the States first to get the green card. And I called my dad and my dad says, uh, yeah, we'll take care of you. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get you an apartment. 
And I was like, okay. And I need like food work. I'm, I have nothing. He's like, yes, we'll take care of you. Like, don't worry about it. 45 minutes later, I had a priestly visit with Randy and Derek Cowie. And they said, well, Lane, we don't think your dad can help you out anymore. And I was like, what are you talking about? I just talked to him 45 minutes ago. And they're like, yeah, he just, uh, you know, we don't think he can help you out anymore. And just like that, I called my dad back after they left. And he said, I can't speak to you anymore. And that was it. Never talked to my dad for like eight years. Wow. Yeah, it's the family's decision. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? right. 45 minutes, somewhere in that 45 minutes. And then the two priests were like, this is it. You're done. Just cut me off like that. Now, I also think they were probably spying on me somehow, maybe saw that I was going to bars and meeting girls and stuff, but I was pretty sneaky too. So I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so, but it, what a blessing in disguise, right? What a blessing in disguise. That they didn't let you back in, Bradley. Thank goodness. Right? Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just want the listeners to realize, listening to his story, like, it takes a long time to get over this to they because this is not a cult that people join partway through their life because you're born into it. The indoctrination and the brainwashing starts as a child. It is hard to get over. It takes sometimes people multiple attempts at leaving, as you can hear, to get away from it. But it is so worth it to be out like it's so worth it. And, and I think. There's two different levels, right? So um, I actually was speaking. Um, I, I have a I have a few dads, like people like in your situation, Bradley, inside that I talk to regularly. And I was talking to one the other day and it is, it is, it's such a, I think the listeners and viewers need to understand what it takes from a father to be able to break through those layers and layers and layers and layers of indoctrination. I think you need to give yourself a little bit of credit for getting up and needing that two to three weeks. I mean, I, you at least left her a letter, right? Like I think looking back on that, man, you deserve that 110% to be able to recognize I need this space. I've got to find some clarity because a father's so indoctrinated. I mean, the, the females are in a, in a different way. They're just submissive, right? But for you to be able to keep batting the apathy against that and breaking through and breaking through and breaking through. Wow. When you said that you didn't really have a story, I'm sitting here listening to this and I'm mind blown. I don't even know how to respond because we'll go into a Cheryl rant. It'll be an hour long and we'll lose all the listeners. No, we love um, Cheryl rants. Because I'm super, re I'm really uh, fired up inside. Story. Yeah. Um, I do story. want to, if you're, if you're willing, I want to shift to a whole other side of the story of your, your uh, generations of your generation, um, of your family and what they were involved in. Can you tell the viewers who your grandfather was? Yeah, so my, my grandfather was, uh, my dad's father was Stanley McCallum, um, Stanley and Edna McCallum. They, he, he had immigrated from, he had been in the Open Brethren in, in Scotland, had worked on the fishing boats there. And then after the First World War, the fishing industry collapsed in Scotland. So he and his brother emigrated from Scotland uh, to the US and he ended up in Detroit um, where he became, he went to work for Ford Motor Company and then became very active in the Brethren and kind of rose through the ranks. Um, 
by the time JT died in 1953, uh, my grandfather, who was commonly referred to as S. McSee, um, Stanley was 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 pretty high up there um, in the in the tiers of brethren. He came into a big spate of conflict with JT Jr., Mr. Taylor Jr., in 1958 to 60. There was a whole round of uh, conflict with them then, which a lot of people don't realize, but almost resulted at that time in my grandfather being withdrawn from. And then my grandfather submitted <laughs> um, to JT Jr. And then in 1970, was over in Aberdeen. You know, he 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 bought into the Brethren. It's a little hard for me to feel too sympathetic towards my grandfather because he was a big part of the regime. You know, I mean, the regime's been rotten since its inception. I mean, it is just theologically completely off base. It is destructive in its character. And in its DNA is just a perverse understanding of Christianity. And embracing that and becoming a leader in it, I, I think is is you know, responsible for that. So he, and, you know, he, he worked through the 60s. He kept his head down during the system days in the mid-60s. He avoided any fallout from that. But then in 70, you know, he was in Aberdeen when JT Jr. was on his rampage through Scotland and Northern England. And uh, S. McSee was the one who went into the bedroom um, with Mr. Gardner and confronted, found JT Jr. naked in his bed. Um, well, he had a so, so, so just to give the picture, this is your grandfather finding the leader of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church in bed with a naked woman. It's not his wife. Yes. And all Mr. Taylor had on was a pajama top. And weird, weirdly, weirdly, JT Jr. was my ex-wife's grandfather. So... Okay. <laughs> deeply deeply yeah. intertwined family shit and you know and half the kids went half of both of their kids went with you know half the taylors stayed with mr taylor half of them left half the mccallums left and half of them stayed you know there was this complete rupturing of the two families anyway but he went in there and in one of the things that's really interesting so clearly jt jr is in bed with mrs kerr she's naked he has a pajama top on and that's it. And my grandfather um, reportedly, I, and I actually believe it because there is some, there are some contemporaneous letters that support it, said to him, Jim, Jim, what, what would Rini say? Which was Mr. Taylor's wife. What, what would, what would Rini say? And Mr. Taylor said to my grandfather, I suppose you're going to go tell her. <laughs> wow. So that's you know, someone that, that to me that sums it up that it was yep. true. Because yep. that exchange was a genuine, I believe, a genuine heartfelt exchange between two men who'd known each other most of their adult lives, mm -hmm. who, who were caught in something really bad. I mean, S. McSee wasn't doing it. But I just think it was a terribly unsavory situation. But that exchange has all the ring of authenticity to it to me. That's Absolutely. Not yeah. Yeah. And and then the, the brethren's comeback to this, okay? Like in my generation, my parents, was that um, 
he orchestrated um, Taylor, was it right? And he, he Taylor claims he it was all it was all it was all this choreographed yes, event. Yes, it, it was draw out the opposition of my grandfather and his friends, which is so ludicrous. It's yeah. so ludicrous. What what he asked he had stayed with him for ten years, but I mean JT Junior was being a completely lewd. Disgusting. He was person. cheating on his wife. He was cheating but I mean, on he was his also wife. Also in the meetings, the printed meetings, read the meetings at Preston, which are just before Aberdeen. They're disgusting. They're ridiculous. I mean, how how that's even passed off as remotely religious or spiritual. Anyway. It's a so, man that's caught red-handed using a most ridiculous excuse because he's a categorical liar. And drunk. And, and so drunk, they yeah. call it. So my grandfather said, Jim, you need to stay here. And we're, we're going to find James because James III was there as well, somewhere in Scotland. He was not in Aberdeen. So my grandfather went and called James. And James, I don't know, he, he Scotland's not very big. So he, he, he came hustling over. And um, in the meantime, Mr. Gardner, whose house it was, kicked the Kerrs out, told Mr. and Mrs. Kerr they had to leave the house. And so I think they just went out and sat in the yard in the night and waited um so james the third turns up at some point during the night and this is that period where jt jr in his letters refers to that he was falsely imprisoned or wrongly imprisoned or something and they were just keeping they, they were like you're sick you're you're clearly clearly unwell this is like so egregious a doctor showed up some brethren doctor and was like yeah he's he's not he's he's sick um he gets on a plane this is saturday night he gets on a plane and leaves before the supper um like the first plane out of scotland so s mcsee and mr gardner and the others go on with the meetings they they have the supper they have the final meeting the reading and preachings of the day and then get on s mcsee gets on a flight home by the time he lands in detroit jt jr had been home you know maybe by 24 hours ahead of him and had already gotten a hold of my dad and some others in Detroit. And Detroit had already withdrawn from SMXC without even talking to him. Wow. Uh, JT Jr. had <laughs> said that they had they had charged him with corruption and it was all false and it was a, a, a thrust against God's throne and all this stuff. A um, thrust against God's throne? So there, there's this language <laughs> they used? The, the enemy's hand is on the throne of Zhao. They should be writers for Disney. They should all be writers for Disney. They referred to that as. So they withdrew from a club. To their credit on Tuesday night. So then my grandfather arrives home and is like, okay, that's bullshit. Like, you you guys need to know actually what happened. This is the deal. This is what he said to me about Rini. Like, no, no, this is. So (laughs) on Tuesday night, so that was Saturday night. Then Sunday night. JT Jr. Sunday, JT Jr. gets home. S. McSee gets home Monday morning. He's withdrawn from already. I think it was an assembly meeting on, on Sunday night. Tuesday at the ministry meeting, the Detroit Brethren have an assembly meeting and reinstate my grandfather. Say, oh, we were wrong. We should never withdrew from him 24 hours ago or 48 hours ago. Get back to politics. He takes the meeting. <laughs> um, and then some... Some brethren, a handful of families are like, no, we're with Mr. Taylor. This is the the enemy's hand is on the throne of Shah. And they get up and walk out. 
And so the entire meeting in Detroit becomes withdrawn from and not with uh. Dr. Taylor. So then during the course of that next week, there's all this phoning going back and forth between like my dad was calling James III, James III was calling my uncle. Uh, everyone was calling everyone, trying to figure out what the hell to do next, who was right, who was wrong, who's, whose dad was in the clear, <laughs> whose dad was telling the truth. Um, <laughs> and at one point, my dad calls what he thought was calling JT Jr., and he actually dialed James III. And or he meant to call James the third, and he accidentally calls James JT Jr. So Mrs. Taylor answers the Rini answers the phone, and she's like, "Oh, Jim's right here. Why don't you talk to him?" So my dad ends up on the phone with JT Jr. This was, I think, on Wednesday, or Wednesday or Thursday. And he's like, "Garth, that's my dad's name. Garth, you know, it's it's lies. You know, they're they're accusing me of all sorts of things. Um, they're accusing me of being drunk." They're accusing me of fondling the breasts of women. They're accusing me of all sorts of corruption. And uh, you need to stay with the assembly and, and stay with the right position and not be diverted by the enemy's attack. And very interesting in this, my father told this a thousand times growing up, JT Jr. never denied the shit. He had it all cloaked in phrases. I'm being accused of this. I'm being accused of that. This is an enemy's attack. This is this and that and the other thing. My, so my father became convinced, okay, I've spoken. I got it right from the horse's mouth, you know, and it sounds convincing. And I believe JT Jr. was very charismatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so my dad went back with the, and asked to be restored to the brethren. And eventually most of the brethren did. Um, my aunt stayed with my grandparents. Uh, for a while, James III, um, his wife was withdrawn from because she didn't buy it. <laughs> there was some questions about whether Mrs. Taylor was going to stay, but she eventually did. Um, but like Ben Taylor um, left over this nonsense. And anyway, so that's that's all of that i've learned so this much constant, this was a <laughs> constant refrain growing up and every my mother would be crying i mean i was in my teens every time this whole story came up because i mean thinking back on it like in 1985 when i would have been 15 it was only 15 years ago for her at that time so mm. it was relatively fresh and yeah. breaking up with all the families and friends you know the complete splitting apart and the embarrassment everything Around that time, around in the mid 80s, I found a suitcase and it was more like a briefcase, a large briefcase in the basement of our house. Um, and my dad had saved everything, everything going back to the 50s, and every newspaper clipping, every letter he had been sent or come across, or he had copied a lot of my grandfather's correspondence. This thing was packed and shit. And so I, I read it for like two or three days. Um, and I couldn't believe it because there was all these press articles about the eating matter. There was all this, all this stuff, all these letters around the, the system in the mid sixties. There was all this shit about Aberdeen. And finally I said, Hey, I found this suitcase. <laughs> like, can we talk about this stuff? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was kind of horrified at first, but then he just kind of was like, Oh, whatever, you know? So, but it was pretty clear to me by then that, so this was, I was in my mid-teens, and I'm like, I, I don't buy the whole, this is a, 
this is this is all a, a big hoax. I mean, and the other thing that was happening in my mid-teens um, was that it was really becoming, I really wanted to go to university, desperately wanted to go to university. And most of my parents' generation of the, you know, brethren weren't supposed to have friends, but everyone had friend cliques. And mm-hmm. like all of my my parents' cliques had all been, were all university educated. There, and there was a difference. There was a difference in these people. And there was a difference in the people that were completely indoctrinated with the brethrenism. There was these, all these older brethren that had become doctors and lawyers and engineers and had lived, worked for worldly companies and worked for worldly, you know, had been belonged to associations and had done all this stuff. And then there was the other brethren, the younger ones like Rick and his generation that didn't. There was a very big difference. There are conversations in the house, there, the way they discuss things, the way they address things. It was, a, you know, there was just this, not this refinement or, or understanding of just kind of openness. There was an openness about these older brethren that there wasn't there in these new ones. And they were much more interesting, I'll bet. Much more interesting. Yeah. And they yeah. took the modern thing seriously. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that really floored me when I was also in this teen period where I was trying to figure shit out was, you know, JHS had this obs- kind of an, um, sorry, Carmen, I hope you don't, I don't know. Oh, you. no. <laughs> he had this kind of anti-education, anti-higher education thing, telling people to piss on their degrees. Yeah. And, um, and he, at one point there was this, in this older group of brethren, a lot of them, you know, every locality had a group of them. You know, they took Bible study seriously and they, they read the old ministries and stuff. But there was a whole group of them in Des Moines. And at one point, I don't know what they had come up against him about JHS, but he made this big thing in one of these meetings about Des Moines needed to burn the Greek dictionaries and stop all this stuff <laughs> a bit spiritual. And I was like, so dad, are you... Are you going to burn your Greek dictionary? (laughs) (laughs) No, who else does this stuff? ISIS. ISIS and the Taliban. They they hate history and they blow shit up. They want to burn all the books. He kept all his library, you know, intact. So Mm. good. Yeah, and I think JHS was such a farmer-minded person. He would have been somewhat intimidated by the um, degrees and the intelligence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, a good way to shut down your competition. I mean, book burning has a really bad history in the world at large. Um, yeah. There's a there's a few people who do it, and and none of them are very nice. <laughs> and do you remember? I don't know, Richard or Carmen. Do you remember when the whole thing about burning CHC's books? Yep. Yes. 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 Yep. And then and then a bunch of them had to confess that they burned his books. Yeah. 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 Somebody said there was more moral value in an asterisk books than there was in a CAC ministry books. So we all pulled them off the shelf and burned them all. Yeah. And then and next then, thing you know, they're bringing them back. <laughs> yeah. 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 That would have been around 86. I remember yeah. it very vividly because there was just one brother in Cambridge, a brother who tended to take things very literally, who, yeah, literally had a bonfire of CAC. And then he was called up, well, we're going to have to shut you up dear brother because you burned CAC but then I mean but then he had he had only just come back he had had to be out out of uh he had been shut up for a couple of weeks because he and his wife had got up to some hanky-panky before they were married shocking thought and so they actually and this was quite to the credit of the dear brother in Cambridge they thought the poor old boy had had enough so they actually let him off the book burning charge (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, it, it vividly sticks in my mind. 
yeah well, that whole seven day matter of withdrawing from people for stuff they did when they were teenagers yeah it was also really weird and that was another thing that happened in my in the 80s that really caused me to second guess things is the brethren were being withdrawn from for every ridiculous little bit of nonsense they were withdrawn from for seven days and then restored it was mm. cleansing the assembly it was cleansing the leprosy purifying the assembly and then rick wilson admits to smoking which was one of the cardinal sins which was half the people are getting withdrawn from for and he gets yeah. forgiven <laughs> He doesn't have to be withdrawn from. It. Yeah, brother, and just are like, oh well, we think we should forgive our our, our brother. You know, he's that's yeah. so funny. Speaking of smoking, too, I just had an insider tell me that there's brethren that secretly smoke, like multiple, and I was like, whoa, like that's pretty. I'm really surprised by that. To tell you the truth, but I think the the. The whole thing, I mean, if, if you build a system, if you build a church or a theological movement or a religious organization, essentially predicated on the negative, which is yeah. we are separating from, you know, we, it's predicated on the negative. It's predicated on egotism, too. We are better. We're special. There's no stability because you can never, you know, the, the, that's why the repeated splits, it's not focused on the message of Jesus. I mean, every Christian, if you are religious or if you are a Christian, every Christian practices some form of quote unquote separation from evil. I mean, that's the, the whole concept of Jesus's work and Jesus's ministry. But this physical and emotional and familial separation that destroys families and destroys communities um, is a complete perversion of that. And it and it's only a measure that's used as control. It is. Yeah. I think it, I, I think it may have at one time, like in J and D's day. But I mean, J and D was not some. I mean, he was a smart man. Oh my! I mean, but he he was not some highly educated person. <laughs> he was essentially he graduated from high school. Yeah. You know, and if you read some of those really old ministries like FER, FER had no um, inclination that people would physically separate themselves from each yeah. other. That was not what was meant by it back in those times. No. I think, I think, like, sorry, the, on, sorry the, like JMD, I believe, built up a system around himself. I think FER was kind of different. But, you know, not a single one of FER's children stayed in fellowship. Not one of them. <laughs> I don't think even his wife was in fellowship. No. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was a kind of this weird interregnum. And then there was then there was JT who became, who kind of solidified this sort of organization and sort of the priest-king sort of model. Yeah. And then, you know, JT Jr. was his own sort of weird um, thing. And then JHS was a really interesting kind of swerve. <laughs> yeah. And the, just because of his... Is, I mean, he was also charismatic in his own way um, oh. to the outsider. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe to the outsider. He yeah. had these really kind of slightly deranged meetings. Like, I don't know if any of you remember the meeting about Red in Toronto where he, yeah. he screamed Red until he was hoarse. Yeah. I, I was terrified as a child. He screamed into the mic, Red, yeah. Red, Red, over and over and over and over again. You just answered a question I've had since childhood about why my grandmother hated red. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was a big deal. He was, was very, he would get very obsessive. And if he, if somebody pissed him off, I mean, he would just sit there in the, in the meeting and take him down. Like he, he was so obsessed with it. He would yell at them. He would call them names. He would say, you know, crazy stuff. And yeah. grandma didn't agree with it. You know, you could see her curling herself up into a little ball. I remember when he went after Art Admiral. Um, she said, no, Jim, no. You know, and anybody around her knew she wasn't agreeing with him. So her submission was not A level, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think the brethren are also predicated on fear too, right? Like they yeah. they have they breed fear of hell and Satan. And this, like, aren't like they will say to people, like, they, like I remember when I was young and I talk about leaving, they would say things like, "Aren't you scared of going to hell, Lane? Aren't you scared?" Like they are terrified that leaving the church automatically means torture chamber forever, and that's a sad, sad way to live. Yeah, it's it's another method of control. Mm. Yeah, they missed the whole mercy glories over judgment thing completely. Yeah. I mean, I was looking up, I was looking up because, you know, this, you know, when you try and write things about the brethren, they have this own, this language of their own. And they talk about shutting people up, which people who've never been in the brethren find that a very shocking term. Um, so I, I was, I looked up, you know, why do the brethren use this term? And, and it's scriptural. Uh, there is one reference in the Bible to shut up. And this is actually the the origin of the term. And it's also the origin of the, the seven-day thing, being shut up for seven days. And this is the book of Leviticus, which is like was written 3,000 years ago. And it's actually a section which talks about when you have a plague in your house. And it's not talking about the people in the house. It's about the structure of the house. So this is like an ancient engineering document. And, and this, is what, this is what it actually says. And when he looketh on the plague, and behold, the plague is in the walls of the house, greenish or reddish hollows, and their look is deeper than the surface of the wall, then the priest shall go out of the house to the entrance of the house and shall shut up the house seven days. Now, I don't believe anyone really knows what this originally referred to, whether it's some kind of dry rot. It very definitely and specifically is talking about the structure of the house. There's separate verses and chapters that talk about sickness in people. I'm going to give it a stab and say you're right with sickness of people. This is most <laughs> likely something that they're like, we don't want the spread of the sickness. And they didn't have science back then. So the best explanation was build the walls this way and that. They're not talking about someone having sin inside them as plague in the house. I love this, Richard. Sorry. But, but what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm meaning is that there's no connection whatever between this verse written 3,000 years ago about some now unknown structural issue and what the brethren do and what they use it for. I mean, this is Old Testament. I mean, all the reference to priests, the reason brethren call each other priests is all derived from the book of Leviticus, which, and really that whole system was finished in the New Testament time. That's for place. That's the law. That's the Jewish law. And, and yet this is, this is how they justify these weird practices, like shutting people up for seven days, just on the basis of this one verse. It's a type but, of silencing, right? Just try and silence you too. Well, I mean, the, the point is that when they say everything they do is justified by scripture, 
yes, they attach a scripture to everything they do, but there's no connection between the scripture and what they do. Yeah, the context. The, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The context. <laughs> the context. It might be something to do with the 3,000 years ago. It might be. Just saying. <laughs> okay, Bradley. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's been a. I can't say anything bad personally, like about JHS or Mr. You know, John Hales. They were very nice to me personally. Um, they're very nice to my parents. Um, but I witnessed stuff <laughs> and sat through meetings where there was just egregious stuff said that, that makes no sense. So I just, I, I, for the, and so, you know, after I kind of got free, shook free of all this after the going back, I took a real, um, long pause from anything brethren related. And I've never spoken publicly, honestly, about my experiences, but um, it's just, I, I think it's a deeply corrupt and evil system. I think it's a complete perversion of Christianity. Do you um, think it's important that people talk about their experiences now and give some they, re relief? Should. I think they should. I don't think people who don't want to should be denigrated. Oh, but I think that it is important. Um, but it's this is not a recent thing. I mean, there are certain people who are really obsessed with trying to like obsessed with Bruce Hales or something. This has been going on for generations. I mean, this nonsense yeah. and this ridiculousness has been going on for literally generations. Mm. And, and I think it, too, what you said about um, uh, about the college education and that. I think that when you look at that generation, that generation was very well taught in the Bible. They, um, they read the Bible and they and they knew scriptures in their context. And what mm -hmm. we saw during Grandpa Simonton's time and then times more recent, they don't study the Bible and they don't they're they're so focused on the ministry, they've lost all practical application of biblical principle. Yeah. I, you know, I, and I think that's why it's so far off the rails. I agree with that 100%. I think there's always been these loose stones in the foundation as far as the basis of the way the thing was set up. Yeah. But when I was young, I mean, there was a lot of older brethren who were serious about their faith, who yeah. lived um, kind of godly lives, didn't yeah. treat people badly. I mean, there, there were times when they were treated yeah. You know, but I, I think that beginning in JHS's time, there was this weird going off the rails of you don't study things, you just, you know, and kind of this iconoclastic kind of trashing of anything serious in terms of of, of um, study of the scriptures yeah. and the truth. But I think that part, of, I think you touched on something really interesting, Carmen, in that I think maybe he was intimidated by these I, people. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think the whole farmer mentality, like farmers were working from sunup till sundown and they didn't spend any time in the Bible. They didn't spend any time studying, you know, when they got home, they ate if they could eat before they went to meeting and then they went to meeting. And by the time meeting was over, they were exhausted. So they found people that did have that time. They found they were intimidated by them. Yeah. You and know? I think also the generation, I mean, like my dad talked about, you know, there were, you know, people, you know, people, particularly in the cities, I mean, eating in restaurants that had bands and like going on these transatlantic crossings and going to dinner with the, you know, the music playing and, and, you know, most of them, a lot of them had summer cottages, like uh, your grandpa Simonton would come up to my grandparents' cottage on Lake Manitoba 
Yeah. But I mean, my grandma would take the kids up there as soon as they got out of school and not come back till the till the fall. Yeah. You know, they lived essentially semi-worldly lives, but I think to a hardworking farmer who had kind of a slight chip on his shoulder or an inferiority complex, yeah. that kind of stuff was probably really, really um, intimidating. Yeah, I think hmm. you're absolutely right. I was talking to an insider this week and um, he did a very good job explaining um, the classes inside the Brethren now. He said, you've got these two main classes. There's the Plymouth Brethren, they're their, your everyday regular Christian, right? Like he says, it's like your parents, Cheryl. He's like, they're, they're your everyday Christian. And he said, then there's the exclusive brethren. And he said, it's the exclusive brethren that run the show. Hmm. Uh, and I would, I would say the other way of defining that is there's the employed and there's the employers. The business owners are all in one exactly. separate class. They run everything. They run the school. They run the meeting. They run the religious side. They run the money side. And then the employ the employees are more or less their slaves, and they're just there to be preyed on. They don't have any influence, yeah. religious or financial. And you know, the, I'm not going to reveal the story that was given to me because I, I, it's confidential. But the story that was laid on my lap brought me to tears absolutely brought me to tears i like bruce you should be freaking sh ashamed of yourself with how you let the poor stay poor i'm just it just man makes me so sad like the the money is not being distributed the way it's supposed to be there are people struggling hugely financially in there yeah. but i mean other than i mean during jhs's time and, and mr hale's jsh's time they actually lived more or less sort of along the lines of, of their ministry. But I mean, JND had servants. He, you know, he was, he, he's vaunted as this sort of great, uh, you know, pilgrim who gave up all his wealth. No, he lived in a five-story townhouse in London with servants. Uh, FER was the secretary of the Naval College. He was in the upper tiers of the British establishment. Mm. JT. JT and JT Jr. had houses on the beach. They had these giant homes in Brooklyn with servants and maids and cooks. And like, I mean, they literally, they live, this has always been the case. It's always been that mm. way. It's, it, it's like this been an in every cult. It's There's like this in every cult. Yeah. Say that again, Bradley? There's always been an aristocracy or a nobility in the brethren yeah. that everybody yeah. else didn't quite measure up to, but there was a circle that yeah. mingled at the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you and I think, think we even saw that in in the interchange? Like Nietzsche was the little farming town and Woodlands was another little farming town. And they all had a chip on their shoulder for the Winnipeggers. Like yeah. and it and it came out in the kids, like the kids would have snowball fights and it was everybody against the Winnipeggers. What goes on in the adults and the attitudes in the adults come out in the kids. Yeah. And I mean, we're seeing that through the reports of One School Global, right? Like it's you're yeah. really seeing that being reported. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you think, Bradley, that eventually things will come crumbling down to be rebuilt? Or like what do you what do you think? I, I don't, honestly. Um I think it survived for 200 years. I think it's probably going to continue. Um mm -hmm. in the way I've I've come into very little conflict or direct confrontation with my family about things because my position on it is um if I'm asking to be accepted for the choices I make, mm -hmm. my kids are all adults now. Mm -hmm. 
they've all made a choice to stay in and not have contact with me, my siblings. I mean, my parents are both dead. But they're making that choice. Um, that's their prerogative. I, I'm not going to kind of, but I mean, there's stuff that people, people where, where things should be, people should be held to account is where there's been criminal activity, yeah. but whether business, whether sexual molestation, whether also, I mean, there's all sorts of crap that goes on in there, as we know. Yeah. Um, I was shielded very much from most stuff growing up. I mean, as a teen, I started to see the business stuff, the corruptness of the tax evasion and stuff I thought was deeply corrupt. My dad handled the money in Detroit for the for the brethren. And there was all that weird white envelope cash stuffing nonsense yeah. going on. And then there was stuff in his business. And it was just, it was just, um, it just, it didn't ring true, you know, to the, to the claims of purity and stuff. But I, I don't think it will, honestly. Um, I think it might, it could. I have a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is it's not, it's, it's, it's not about bringing it to its feet for, to get rid of it. Right. Like it's not that it's about bringing it to its feet for accountability and then rebuild it the way that it was meant to be. Yeah. I, I, I find it hard to believe how the whole current regime with this bizarre, like multi-million dollar mansions and private jets and all that nonsense and the the serfs you know the the nobility and the serfs thing i have a hard time seeing that going on endlessly because it was never it was never like that i mean like i said earlier there was always many of the leaders had very luxurious lives traveled first class did all this stuff but it was never sort of in your face as egregious Mm -hmm. and it's sort of ridiculous as it is now and I have a I have trouble seeing how that continues but then you take both of my brothers-in-law you know they're they're both really extremely smart businessmen they're extremely nice people they've always been very nice to me and I think they've bought into it hook line and sinker and to see you know living in gigantic homes on golf courses just like is mind-boggling to me but I think I think there's a clever move that's been or a series of moves over time where there's these key people in all in different places around the world that have been sort of bought off by the regime yeah. by giving power and privilege. Mm. Um, wow. And they can kind of hold the, the serfs at bay. It's not dissimilar to Imperial Russia, you know, prior no. to the- Well, that didn't end well, did it? That <laughs> <laughs> is true, but it took 600 years. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but but I think I I, I think uh, a likely outcome is is a as a split between the as you say between the serfs and the aristocracy. I mean the aristocracy doesn't have much reason to to destroy or destabilize the system because they're benefiting from it. But there's a whole class of people that are financially and emotionally trapped in the system by family ties and employment. And I think it's going to get to a point where a very large number of those are going to see through it and want to get out. And then the question comes, can they extricate themselves from the system? Yeah. And I think so many are already seeing through it, right? There's, I mean, by the amount of people that I talk to and that we've all had contact with inside there, there's a lot of people that are really starting to see through the system. It's just a matter of how do they all stand up together and make some sort of a change, right? Or walk out. But they need their, I mean, the thing is, is they need their, I mean, a lot of people that I talk to, they need their businesses to leave with, right? Well, they don't need to. Some of us left with nothing. 
That's yeah. a really good and point. I, yeah. and I, I hope think, they sucked it up and did it. And, yeah. and I, 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 I do somewhat, I understand how difficult it is. And I understand the, the terror and the fear. But I do bristle somewhat when people say I can't go. Because yeah. I, I need my money. Yeah. Or I, That's or a really I'm good not, point. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up. I'm not no, it's very interesting because... I did exactly the same as you did. I left all my money. I wasn't going to take the house away from my ex-wife and my children. So I literally left with nothing. Um, I mean, I would probably, my net worth was around about a million dollars US, include the house and everything. And they, when they actually, they, they came after me with the top lawyers they could. My wife actually divorced me. They got the top lawyers, the brethren always use divorce lawyers. And they wrote me this sort of major intimidating letter and I said look you can relax guys I'm not actually asking for anything and it was oh oh you know and and then so they drew up a divorce my wife actually gave me 25,000 pounds she said she wanted me to have it although I was prepared to walk away with nothing mm -hmm. so all that money went straight to to a lawyer to help some legal matters but but yeah I mean in, so in practice I, I I left with nothing I just had to find a job but and, I was I was talking. You, you can do that. It takes a while, but it's possible. It's I terrible. was talking to a recent outside, uh, recent lever who was talking about that, and I was saying, you know, I may never have the money like that my brothers have, and all that that rich and business and everything. But everything I've got, I did for myself with zero help from them. My brothers have built a business on top, of, on top of my dad's business. Sure, they made it bigger. But there's something about leaving clean slate, having nothing, and yeah. everything around you, you built for yourself. There's something amazing that no one can ever take that away from you. Mm. Yeah, I've got an uncle. I've got an uncle who lives in Scotland who was kicked out of the Brethren when he was 17. He's treated incredibly cruelly. Um, he was put in a caravan in the front yard because he didn't want to break bread. He hadn't done anything wrong. He just didn't want to break bread. He just didn't do enough good. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't even that. It was when JT Jr. brought in that everyone has to break bread in the household. And that was, you know, up to then you'd had to ask to break bread. Yeah. And then JT says, well, no, you can't have anyone living under your roof that's not breaking bread. So everyone's either got to break bread or get out. And he didn't want to. They put him in a caravan in the front yard. And then the, the priests come along and say, no, that's too close for comfort. So they move the caravan to a to a recreation ground way out in the country and leave him there all winter to fend for himself. But he, he picked himself up by his bootlaces, took himself to university, got a, got a very good engineering degree. He still didn't have any money. Um, he had, I think he told me, $100 in his bank account, and he spent the whole of it on buying an engagement ring for his beloved. Aww. And so at that point, he literally had nothing. He then went on to an extremely successful career as an engineer on the Concorde supersonic aircraft, on military submarines, set up his own marine engineering business, which he sold for, I think about, I'm guessing 20 million pounds or so, quite wow. a few years back. And he now lives in a beautiful old stone manor house in Scotland and he collects uh, classic cars. He's got a Rolls Royce with his initials as the number plate he's got classic jaguars and he's extremely well off thank you very much and he left the brethren and started with nothing so it's possible what you yeah, say don't you can make, make sure you're not yeah. selling your soul to the devil for a reason yeah. that can be yeah. let go of yeah and yeah. and i can 
I can't guarantee this, of course, but I can almost guarantee you're not going to go to hell. <laughs> not for leaving the brethren. No, there's no torture chamber for people that leave the exclusive brethren. You know, you may be, you may be coming from hell, but that's not where you're going to. Yeah. Exactly. That's the funny part about it. Coming from hell. Yeah. Speaking of all this stuff, I remembered something, Carmen. One of the times, the last time I saw your grandfather actually was, um, we were in Nietzsche. Well, we were in St. Vincent doing something, visiting my grandparents, and we had gone over to Jim and Trissy's for for the break. And I don't know. There wasn't a ton of brethren there. There was my folks, my grandparents, and maybe ten other people. And JHS was at this point, I think, blind. Was he was he blind at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was very very unwell. He was kind of propped up in a lazy boy. And uh, Trissy gave him some food and things during the during the break, but we all sat kind of silently, silently in the living room around on those chairs. And then the weird thing that sticks in my mind was at the end when it came time for us to go, we all stood up in single file, walked by his chair and kissed him. Yeah. It was it was very much like kind of like a papal audience or something. We we literally all filed <laughs> by. Leaned over and and thanked him for having us and kissed kissed his face. That's straight up from the Godfather. That's straight from the Godfather. <laughs> yeah. It's also yeah, not I very hygienic, think, is it? <laughs> I used to think everybody sitting there in those chairs in kind of a semicircle, it was like birds on a highline wire. Nobody <laughs> said a word. <laughs> Nobody said anything. Everyone just ate some food, and yeah. then we all got up and filed past the Godfather and and yeah. kissed the yeah. ring. Oh, yeah, and I was God. usually serving the food and if anybody had extra large feet my my nightmare was if you tripped over somebody's feet and the tray went everywhere oh, yeah. <laughs> I think we were there yeah. that day we were there actually yeah we were there every Sunday so probably yeah. <laughs> well we should probably wrap this up we probably could sit here for another couple hours but yeah, yeah Bradley I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this me too. I felt yeah. like I just sat in a class and had my mind blown and had to absorb and digest things that I, yeah, I'm just. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. It was incredibly interesting, Bradley. Thank you yeah. so much. Anytime. Yeah. Anytime you, you want, you like can ready to do another one, just message us. Yeah. Okay. Sounds <laughs> good. So great. Feel free to come on. And, um, Sending much love to everybody else that's out there. Please remember to subscribe, like, please. and comment down below, please. It helps us with getting this out to the masses. Um, share, share, share. Yeah. Take care. Yeah, and if you're inside, and if you're inside, you can get out. Life is really, yep. really good. Life yeah. is really good. <laughs> really good. <laughs> if Bradley can do it, you can do it. <laughs> I can. Take care, everybody. Yeah, take care. To share your story or be a guest on the show, email info.getalife at proton.me.